Hi, my name is Caroline, and I'm so glad that you're joining us on our Grace Journey podcast. At Grace Church, we are all about knowing God and reflecting His way. I hope this sermon will do just that by feeding your mind with the knowledge of God and engaging your heart to live a life reflecting His grace and truth. Today, I want to talk about nationalism. And uh, the book that I, uh, each week I'm showing you a book that I read for that topic. And this book is by Gregory A. Boyd. And it's called The Myth of a Christian Nation. The Myth of a Christian Nation. Uh, It's very helpful. It has some good, um, it's not a ton of history, but it's it's mostly, uh, again, he's a Christian author. Very highly recommended. um, Well-resourced. It's going to be controversial. And even in the back part of it, he has some Q&A stuff where he says quite openly, hey, look, these are my opinions about certain things, and you may have a different take on that, and I know some Christians do. But let's talk about, uh, for today, uh, nationalism, and that is, what is it, and how does that compare or contrast with a patriotism, okay? So I have some notes, and so if you want to write things down, I think your bulletin has some pages, you can do that. So, and actually, it's not just about nationalism, it's nationalism in the church, like, kind of what is the kingdom of God, because that's going to be very, very relevant to this. So nationalism is when someone is proud of their country regardless of what it does. Nationalism is proud of your country regardless of what it does. So every country, of course, they're human organizations. They all do things that, uh, that you shouldn't be proud of. But nationalism means you're proud of it no matter what. It often engenders a feeling of arrogance. That is, you know, um, maybe you've seen some of these rallies where folks are just chanting USA, USA, over the top of other dissident voices. That really is a sense of arrogance that it's channeling up for people that is not healthy for anybody. Versus patriotism. Patriotism is proud of your country for what it's done. This is more of a retrospective look that is patriotism. And often what patriotism does in a broad, broad scope is that it, it engenders responsibility. It makes people feel responsible. I want to be a part of the growth of this country. So when the United States is at its best, it is inspiring patriotism, that is folks who want to get involved, not just in wars, but in all that the country has to offer. Does that make sense? Patriotism is much more, I want to be involved. Nationalism is much more, uh, my country right or wrong. My country right or wrong is, is very much a sense of like, every, well, every other country must be wrong then, because my country's always right. And so that's, that's the sort of the starting place for this. But then we come to this idea of, okay, so you can debate these things all you want, uh, and lots of folks are. Turn on the news. You're going to hear this discussion quite a bit. But where is Jesus in this? Where's the church? Where's Christ? So that's what I really want to talk about. And actually, the slogans that get used for this all the time, and you, you've heard them, I, I certainly have, is this idea of taking America back for God. Have you heard this? We need to take America back for God. So there are certain presuppositions. So... Here's how the church has addressed nationalism. That's what I want to go through right now. Very, very commonly we have the church, the American church, and here I'm talking about all Protestants, but maybe some Catholics as well, but generally speaking, the American evangelical church, but uh, I would say even broader, has really blended the kingdom of God, K-O-G, kingdom of God, and the USA, United States of America. Uh, We've blended those things in such a way that we've come up with this phrase of taking, uh, taking, back, uh, taking America back for God. And what that typically translates is 
to these eight agenda items, which I will read to you because I know they're small. Um, typically, taking America back translates into voting for your Christian candidates, outlawing abortion, outlawing or uh, having laws against uh, gay marriage and or transgender issues, winning the culture war, however you want to define culture war. There's lots of ways to define it. Defending biblical freedoms at home and abroad. Oh, I'm sorry, not biblical. Defending political freedoms at home and abroad. That's a big one for the church. Uh, number six, taking America, taking America back for God often means uh, keeping under God in the pledge. Number seven often means asserting prayer in public, at public events or in schools. And number eight means displaying the Ten Commandments on government buildings. These are usually the eight talking points, the eight flashpoints when it comes to this idea of the kingdom of God and nationalism here in the United States, or what, in a shorthand, when people say, what does it mean to take, back, take America back for God? It usually means one of these eight issues has come up. Hopefully you can see right off the bat, this is a very, very limited list. This, there's a lot of things that aren't on this list that should be on this list, if you really want to take back, take America back for God, a lot of things should be on this list, and they're not. Um, so your first question should be, well, why is that? What's going on here? And to understand why that is, we need to do a little history, okay? Um, and that is how we got here. So, um, so wait, okay, so, um, yeah, this is good. How we got here. I don't, my notes and my notepad got different, sorry. Uh, so the, the first foundational question I want you to ask when it comes to the kingdom of God and the United States of America and how those two things go together is when was America God's uh, in the first place? When was this a Christian nation in the first place? By definition, we were never a theocracy. You guys hopefully understand. A theocracy means a nation based on one God uh, or a religion. So some theocracies you may have heard of, Israel. They're a theocracy, okay? And, and, and their God, his name was Jehovah. And so that would be like, so if, if you were Jewish, taking Israel back for God, that kind of makes sense. I can make, you can make that case because it was founded either by God or with God's principles, uh, with godly people. I mean, and by godly people, I mean those sort of being obedient to God. The United States wasn't really... Um, wasn't how, wasn't how we started, which I'll talk to you about that a little bit. So this idea of taking back assumes that we, the United States, have been a theocracy at some point. So let's talk about some of those found at this foundational myth that America is a Christian nation. Um, from the beginning of the United States, uh, some folks, but not everybody, has believed that God's will was manifest in uh, in the United States is both founding and its conquering of the lands, so that, that the conquering or the founding of it was somehow God showing his will, okay? Which works really well unless you were the indigenous people. Then you're like, wait, God wanted to wipe me out? Is that, where, where do I fit into this? And it was kind of like, no, we didn't want to wipe you out. We just wanted you to become subject to us and do what we wanted. Um, also, part of this idea that America is a Christian nation, some other ideas here are the United States that their causes, our causes as a country, have been just or right, and that God has been on our side. Maybe you've heard some of these talks. But if you're a student of history, many of our wars, many, many of our wars, 
don't fall into what can be justified from a Christian point of view as a just war. Uh, Augustine has seven principles for a just war. And really the only one that comes close to a just war, that is a war that we should be in, and even it doesn't meet all seven criteria. Anybody want to guess which of our wars is the most just? No, not the Civil War, uh uh-uh. No, World War II. World War II. Right, because the stage was set for World War II, and that seemed to be like there's a giant evil. And so, but there were seven criteria, and even for World War II, we don't meet those seven criteria. But that's just talking about war now. I'd like to talk more broadly about us as a country, and that is, are the things that we have done, if you're going to say that we're a Christian nation, you have to say that the things that we've done as a country have been right and just. Things, of course, like slavery and enslavement, things like internment camps, things like, I mean, the topics we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Has the way that we've handled race in, a, in, in America been right and just? You have to make that case if you're saying you're taking America back, because that assumes that America at some point was a theocracy. See, the, the phrasing is we're taking it back, so that means we're going back to what we were. But really, that's just an issue of perspective, of where you stand and really, the people who have the best perspective on that are uh, Caucasian males. Uh, so uh, making America white and male again should really be like the phrase that I want, because that most helps me. Um, but making America godly again or making America uh, a great Christian nation again, a very, very difficult case to make in terms of history. Um, Often those who uh, talk about America being a Christian nation uh, put the cross and the flag side by side. They, they co-join those things. Uh, I have very regularly seen crosses that have been emblazoned with uh, the American flag on it. Uh, this is highly problematic to me because uh, that is sort of imposing a, um, American ideology on a symbol that is about freedom for everybody and about relationship and about uh, redemption of all humanity. So to somehow brand that as American, I think is entirely unfair. And it's unfair to our history, but it's more unfair to the kingdom of God. It really kind of uh, it saddens me because it's a very truncated view of what Christianity is. Um, oftentimes we're told that if America is a Christian nation, that the allegiance to God and the allegiance to country go hand in hand. Um, that's a difficult case to make, in my opinion. Uh, You're going to have to convince me of that, but I'll let that one go. That's sort of the the, the smallest one. Um, Then I have heard this in my sort of my years as being a Christian and, and confusing that with nationalism, that in the Bible it talks about that we as Christians should be a city on a hill. Have you heard this phrase before? Jesus said it, right, to be a city on a hill. When Jesus said that we should be a city on a hill, what's he talking about? An example, right. And what he's talking here about specifically is not necessarily the church he's talking about, but he is talking about the group, the body of Christians, those who follow him. We should be, um, our love and our uh, good works, our religion should be such that people see it shining brightly as a way that changes the world. And there are lots of good examples of when the church has done that. There are, of course, bad examples as well. But when you start mixing a city on the, a city on the hill with America, 
then it's the church's job to make America great. Does that make sense? Do you see how that works? If, it's, if, if America is that city on a hill that we want the whole world to be like, when that's not what Jesus was saying, he was talking about Christianity, then it's really incumbent on all Christians to make sure that we keep America great so that the whole world can find faith. But that's not how it works. Not at all. So this myth of taking America back for God, it clouds our vision. It clouds our vision of God's unique kingdom. The kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about explicitly and a lot in the Gospels is nothing is not like the United States of America. It is unique. But when we say we're taking America back for God, we are confusing these things in such a way that we're doing a disservice, and I would even say doing violence to the idea of what God's kingdom is. It also allows us to be molded and manipulated by other folks who understand this language, and the people who are really good at it are politicians. They, we have some, some Christian politicians who understand this language and have used it to evoke things from us as Christians that sound right, and then what happens is we begin to compromise. We begin to compromise our witness. And when our witness is compromised, and our witness, I mean, that's a story that Christ put in us. That's what I mean by witness. When our witness is compromised and we become just a political faction, pick whichever one you want, we lose our witness to everybody else. We, we no longer have the ability to speak up or speak out because all we really are are just politicians in a smaller way. We're just a smaller speaking platform for them. These eight points right here, because this has really become the summation of what it means to take America back for God, these eight points have reduced the kingdom of God to something that really uh, it, it was never intended. And I think, in fact, um, has corrupted, has corrupted the church, has corrupted our witness to a non-Christian world because they just assume if you tell somebody that you're a Christian, this is what you care about. This is, these are the eight things that you care about. Now, do I have thoughts on these eight things? Yes, I have thoughts on these eight things. But this is all I think about? Oh, heavens no. But this idea of taking America back for God has corrupted because we've joined the kingdom of God and the USA. Uh, we've, we've lost it. And it's caused the non-Christian world to assume that we hate them. If they don't think like us, if we don't, if they don't think like us, or if they're going to become a Christian, they got to sign on to this manifesto. I'm not asking anybody to sign on to this manifesto. I'm asking you to sign on the manifesto of God, who is Jesus Christ. Let's talk about that. That's what I really want for you. So, and then the last part about this idea of the U.S., uh, the United States, and the Kingdom of God being merged or the same thing, and this is hard, but the Bible is clear on this. It's idolatry. It's idolatry because you can't, you, Jesus, uh, the Bible is very clear. There's one God and we were to worship him. So if we have mixed the kingdom of God and the United States of America in such that we worship them both, God says he's jealous of our worship. And so to mix them both is idolatry. And idolatry in scripture has a very severe punishment. So I caution you to not be idolatrous. But let's even just think through, um, did I write this down? Yes. Sort of. Yes, good. Um, let's talk through the difference between governments and the kingdom of God. What's the difference between the two? So a government, uh, any government, is there to establish 
their rules. Every government has the, has the, the right and really the mandate to establish law and order and right and wrong. Maybe they're moral, maybe they're not, but governments are there to establish their borders, their presence. Here's who we are. Governments are also there to protect, ideally, its citizens. So we're here to establish what we think is what we want. We're here to protect what we think is right, whatever you think, whatever the government thinks is right, and then to advance that agenda wherever we can. Okay, that's the government's job. Okay? The other side of this is what is the kingdom of God's uh, position? What does it try to do? Well, the kingdom of God, we're told constantly, is about sacrifice. Sacrifice for each other. Sacrifice on behalf of our king. It's also to witness to the king, okay? To uh, let folks see us and say, hey, we're pointing to somebody else. So we sacrifice for, we witness to, and we submit to this dictator known as the Trinity. And let's be clear, he's a dictator. He's not taking any votes about anything. Uh, where governments take votes because they're trying to establish and protect and advance, the kingdom of God is sacrificing, witnessing, and submitting. So therefore, what happens is these are two different targets. The target of the kingdom of God is to worship and obey king, the king of Jesus. Okay? The target of the government is its agenda, its ideas, whatever that government wants to advance, that's what the, this government is trying to do. That's why they have these certain agenda items, whatever they are, or lots of them, okay? But you can't say that a government and the kingdom of God, because they're not aiming, I don't know any government that is aiming at God. You might aim at some of the moral principles that God is talking about. You might pick up on some of those. But to say that, the, that any country, even the nation of Israel, and, and, I'm, and now I'm here talking about the one in the Bible, do some Old Testament reading. We did it in our, in our Bible study this morning in Joshua. Uh, Terry Walker had a very salient point about this. Every time that they did what God said, things went well. And when they stopped, things went really bad. They're the only ones who ever even attempted that, and they didn't get it right. They, they were the closest ones to being the kingdom of God. Uh, and they constantly were botching it. So, different targets means different results. We all together still? So let's talk about five contrasts here. Uh, between these kingdoms. So the five contrasts are which, are the, which do... I'm, now I'm comparing and contrasting two kingdoms. And uh, the author is very helpful here because he's not just talking about the United States of America here. He's really talking about uh, two different kinds of ways of thinking. And how he does it is a government is based on the sword, the kingdom of the sword. Why? Because it has to advance or protect or enforce its agenda. Where the kingdom of God is based on the cross. and on the, um, So he has the kingdom of the sword versus the kingdom of the cross. Okay, Those are the two kingdoms that I want to talk about a little bit here. So the kingdom of the sword, um, how does it advance its agenda? Well, it advances its agenda through power, control, uh, influence, could be propaganda, um, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of the sword is based on Satan's control, that Satan is in control of this world. Um, this, the kingdom of the sword is based on tit for tat. You punch us, we punch you. You do to us, we will do back to you. Uh, the best governments 
ever existed, and this isn't uh, an indictment, but this is just true, the best that a government can do for you is peace through violence, or the peace through the threat of violence. If someone, if we can tell another country, look, you mess with us, we're going to hurt you more, that might lead to peace. That's the best the kingdom of the sword has to offer, okay? Versus the kingdom of the cross. And this is the kingdom that if you're a Christian, this is the kingdom you signed up for, and this is the kingdom that, that you will be uh, a part of in heaven. So, and Jesus tells us that we should be advancing that kingdom now, today. So you have to make some decisions here. So the kingdom of, cross, of the cross, we see our chief leader on the night before he died getting up and washing uh, his dork disciples' feet. Uh, that is not a kingdom based on power and authority. Uh, we see the kingdom of the cross being based on giving, being based on planting, that is planting of relationships, planting of ideas. Uh, we see it based, based on health and wholeness, togetherness, sacrificial giving, redemption. Uh, the kingdom of the cross very frequently speaks about being children or being like children. Uh, that is not a kingdom of the sword idea, and it can't be. At the end of the day, of course, the kingdom of the, of the cross is about God. So let's talk about how we compare and contrast these two kingdoms. The first is this idea of trust. Which, which do these two kingdoms trust? Well, the kingdom of the sword clearly trusts uh, power over, power above. The kingdom of the sword only works if I have power over someone else. That's, that's the only way I can make my agenda um, known and, and enforce my will is by power over versus the kingdom of the cross. What is the kingdom of the cross? It's power under. Jesus relinquished his life. It's, it's not a power over. It's a power under. So where we begin with the question that you should ask here is, uh, in these two different governments, uh, what do you trust? Do you trust power over or do you trust power, trust power under? That's your question, okay? You get to answer this. By the way, I think you already have. So I bet you've already answered all these questions, um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to line up with kind of how you see the church and how you see the politics and how you see the nation, uh, not just ours but the world. Um, so power over versus power under. The question you're asking here is, what do you trust? Point number two of the, the contrast of the two kin kingdoms is uh, the contrast of aims. The question here I want you to ask is, what are your goals? So what is the goal of the kingdom of the sword? Well, it's behavioral control. We want to make people behave a certain way. We know that everybody doesn't behave the same, so we want to control that behavior. We also, the kingdom of the world, or the kingdom of the sword, the, the goal of that is to preserve or advance the self-will of that government. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what a government's supposed to do. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's the goal, the aim of a government. Versus the kingdom of the cross that, again, Christians are a part of. What's the goal of the kingdom of the cross? Transformed lives. Transformed from the inside out not the outside in. So that's a big difference here in these aims. Or did I get this backwards? No, aims. Good. Aims, that, the goals. The goal of the government is to transform us from the outside in. We make enough laws, and you have to be a good person. That's kind of how we do this. 
you know, if we regulate your life good enough and in government, you will eventually be a good person. So we believe. Governments do. The kingdom of the cross has a different view. No, let's transform you from the inside out. Let's, rec- let's help you recognize you're broken and lost, and only through God's power, through the Holy Spirit himself, can you be redeemed and then do good things. That transformation causes Christians to carry out God's will and sacrifice where necessary. So the goals of the two kingdoms, here, I'll write that here, goals, aims or goals, the aims or the goals of the two kingdoms are different. They're aiming at different targets from the start. So who do you, what do you trust? What are your goals? Number three, uh, the scope. That is, what do these two different kingdoms see? How do they see? So the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the sword, is actually tribal in nature. It's tribal in nature. It is, by definition, whatever their borders are, that's our tribe. And even inside of that tribe of those borders are other smaller tribes of people who congregate together. And a, the kingdom of the sword, today's governmental world, uh, they have to be defensive of their nation, of people groups, and they're also defensive of ideologies. Much of the battles in today's world are ideological battles. And that's what governments are fighting. Who has the right way of running the ship? And that's what we're seeing. So Putin has his way of running the ship in Russia. And our government says, no, we're going to run it with this free market. And then Russia says, great, you have a free market. Let's try to ruin it by all their social media stuff. Uh, That's the defensive nature here of these two different kingdoms. I will tell you the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the sword, when it comes to what do they see, how do they see it, it's perpetual conflict. Governments are always going to be in perpetual conflict because they are defensive of each other and not just of their borders, but of their ideas. So now the USA has become defensive of democracy because we have the monopoly on democracy. And so we are the ones to defend it worldwide. And so that puts us not just on the defense, but on the offense in some cases. Um, and so that's, been an, that's, that's an interesting discussion. So that's how the kingdom of the world sees it. How does the kingdom of God see things? Well, not tribal. Matter of fact, what we see in Revelation is that all languages, all tongues, all tribes are worshiping together, is what it says. Um, the kingdom of God, under its, what does it see, is this idea of reproducing uh, right relationships. And out of right relationships comes, comes this bond of love that um, sounds maybe crazy, and yet it's worked. There have been places where it's worked. Um, and so the end result of the scope that these two different kingdoms see is the kingdom of God chooses love over conflict. Where the kingdom of the sword is always in perpetual conflict, the kingdom of God eventually says there is no more conflict because it's been eliminated because uh, God reigns. And all Christians, all humans, not just Christians, all humans will bend their knee and accept him as Lord or not walk away. Fourth, um, Wait, no, okay, I got this backwards here. So, yeah, battles. So who do these two different kingdoms fight? Well, the kingdom of the world fights earthly battles, wars, you're familiar with them, and it's primarily because there's earthly enemies, and we need to fight them. The kingdom of God has no earthly enemies. There are no enemies on earth for God. Um, And in fact, The only battle spoken of in Scripture is not against flesh and blood at all. 
It's against spiritual powers and principalities. It's against Satan. That's the only battle that's spoken of in Scripture. So the kingdom of God uh, has no liberals or conservatives. It has no fundamentalists or pro-choicers. It has no Fox or CNN. It has none of that because uh, they're not fighting other humans. It's only uh, spiritual powers. So that's where those battles come out. Um, Then uh, the fifth one is response. And that question here that I want you to ask is, how do these two different governments respond to evil or to battles or to aggression? How do these different governments respond or different systems respond? Well, the world governments, uh, all governments respond tit for tat, hurt those who hurt you. So if your government gets hurt, there's a reciprocity uh, in effect. That is, I will hurt back those who hurt me. Versus the, um, the, the kingdom of God, how does it respond? Well, it says, in fact, it says no evil for evil. It says no violence for violence. It says those who do bad to you, do good to them. Walk a second mile for those who have enslaved or oppressed you. And then it says, even seek the well-being of the enemy. So that's how that kingdom. So I'm I'm trying to hopefully build a case here about why the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, governmental systems of this world, cannot be the same. They are not the same. So how does this work? Or the best question is, well, so now what? What what are we to do about this? Um, The first thing that I want you to do is to separate the kingdom of, the God, kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world in your mind. Uh, they aren't the same. They never will be the same. They don't have the same goals. Uh, as good as perhaps the United States has been in world history, and that's a debate we can have, um, you cannot say it is God's nation, and it, it never has been. But that is not to say that you can't pursue parts of the kingdom of God within our current government. You absolutely should. That's what some of these other classes have been about, about how to pursue the kingdom of God within the kingdom of the world. That is what we are called to do. But you should never embrace the whole kingdom or, heaven forbid, merge God's kingdom and this kingdom. You have to pick one or the other. So that's number one, separate the kingdoms. Number two, be suspicious of all governments. Be suspicious of all kingdoms of this world. There is no political ideology. There's no program, no social program that uh, those of you who are Democrats, there's no program that you're going to have that's going to fix all of our ills. I hate to break it to you, but there's not. Um, But I can also tell you that the sword also always fails. The sword always fails because as soon as you exert authority, power over, you have to defend the power over. You have to defend that position. And that leads us into an us and them mindset. That leads us into the tribal mindset. Uh, If you were here last year and we read Brene Brown's book, what was it called? Braving the Wilderness. She has a great chapter in there about uh, us and them mentalities and what that how that really destroys us as people. She's not, I mean, she's a Christian. But she's not writing for a Christian audience, but she makes a very powerful sociological, psychological argument how us and them is not appropriate. This, so number two is be suspicious of all governments because we don't want to fall into that us and them mindset that almost every government, is, actually not almost, every government is in an us and them mindset. Um, the third one, this hopefully is obvious or easy, is to be like Jesus. Um, 
Let's be clear about something when we talk about Jesus. His world was just as brutal, if not more brutal than our world today. It was just as brutal and more brutal. And yet, as brutal as his world was, what was his advice when it came to, uh, to the government? What did he say? What was it? Obey it. Obey it. Do what it said. In an in a incredibly oppressive governmental system, the Roman government, he said, do what it says. Follow their rules. Um, without capitulating, without giving in to yourself, giving up your own self, without losing your, your, your faith. Um, so he is our example of how to do this, how to stand and work within a governmental system and yet still advance or pursue another kingdom, a different kingdom. Um, so he never came out and said, oh, well, these... Uh, certain laws I'm against. He never gave solutions to geopolitical problems. Um, He preferred the transformation of people from the inside out. That was his method to build his kingdom, and it was exclusively that. So we need to give to God the things that bear his image. What are the things that bear his image? Us. Every human you've met bears his image. And you give to Caesar the thing that bears Caesar's image, which is? Money or stuff or whatever, everything else. But what are the things that bear his image, God's image? You, people. So we need to work on those. Our very lives are called to be given to God. That's how we're supposed to live out this kingdom of the sword versus kingdom of the, uh, the cross. Number four, and I think I'm done after this. So we can have a little bit of a hot debate maybe. Uh, number four is uh, we need to stop vilifying Christians over issues and ideologies. A passage I would love for you to read is Matthew 10, uh, verses 3 and 4, but really a a much broader context. Because in that passage, I'll just tell you what it is, but I would love for you to read on your own. Jesus calls a tax collector and a man named Simon, commonly known as Simon the Zealot, to both be his disciples. So, What do you know about tax collectors? What? They were hated because why? They they were enforcing Rome's policies, and um, and when they they would charge taxes, they'd always put a little bit extra, you know, a little bit for me, right in the pocket, right? Now, because they they sold out to Rome, they were were your alt-rights, okay? Tax collectors were your right-wingers. They loved Fox News. They watched it, whatever, whatever your alt-right news. I don't know. I'm not trying to make Fox, Fox News that. But whatever, your, your tax collector for your alt-right. Simon the Zealot, he was your most leftist you could get. About as left as you can go. Further swing left. And so, in one day, in, one, in two verses, Jesus calls, calls Rush Limbaugh and Rolf Nader to both be disciples. Is such a thing possible? It was for Jesus. It was for Jesus. So why isn't it possible for us? Why do we vilify the left and the right? Why can't the zealots and the tax collectors actually uh, have a place together on the same table? Well, because we stop listening to each other. Because it's easier to make them, whoever you want them to be, your enemy. And we just throw them under the bus. We destroy them. We fight them. Um, Do you know that Simon and Matthew... In their three years together, we see no example of them ever fighting. 
Now, they probably had some interesting discussions around the, the fire at night, right? I bet they really were uh, interesting cats to be around. But they ministered together, and it was not a problem. Why? Because the kingdom of the cross changed them from the inside out. Do you see the difference there? Our commonalities, at least among Christians, should dwarf our politics, and I fear that they don't. Our commonalities of faith and relationship should become before and come over your ideologies, uh, your political ideologies. Who did Jesus side with, the tax collector or the zealot? Neither. He never sided with either one, and he could have easily. He could have made that point, and he never did. So if you find yourself siding with one or the other, then I'm going to say that uh, you have made a bad choice. So I want you to stop vilifying other believers, and I want you to reject those who do. And so if you hear Christians who from their Christian point of view are vilifying Rush Limbaugh or are vilifying, well, I don't know, Nader's kind of out of the scene now. Who's a, who's a good left person? Bernie Sanders, great, thanks. Great, perfect. Yeah, so if you're Christians vilifying Bernie Sanders, one, I want you to be like, okay, immediately, I'm no longer going to take this person, uh, what they're talking about uh, in terms of politics, that seriously anymore. I also would love for you to confront them and say, you know, if they're a Christian especially, I mean, politically, you can do what you want. But as a Christian, you say, you know what, that's wrong, what you're doing right there. To vilify Bernie Sanders, to vilify uh, Rush Limbaugh, that's wrong. We are not those kind of people. Uh, and we have to stand above that because we are under the king. We are not people who pursue power. So, back to that very original question. Patriotism versus nationalism. Let's, let's cover this and then we're done. There it is. A patriot is proud of their country for what it's done or what it is doing, and it it fosters a feeling of responsibility. A nationalist is proud of their country regardless of what it does, and it it fosters this feeling of blind arrogance. You can decide for yourself which one you kind of more fall into. Um, What I would say is that we need, as Christians, to be both proud of our uh, Christians who live in America now, we, as, as patriots, we can be proud of the things that we have done well as a country while also being very open about the ways that we have not been honest and truthful, uh, the ways in which we have uh, hurt other people, uh, both in our country and out. I can tell you that a patriot is somebody who uh, is honest about the flaws of their country, where a nationalist is someone who picks fights about their country. Uh, nationalism... Uh, very directly caused World War I. Uh, I think you can make a very straight, a strong case that it caused World War II as well by direct uh, linkage. Christians have no business being nationalists. It is sinful and it is sin-filled uh, because it, it, by its definition, nationalist builds superiority in your head above somebody else. Patriotism, I think, is okay. Uh, because hopefully it causes you to be an engaged citizen, but you should be suspicious of it. Because patri- the line between patriotism and nationalism, razor thin and invisible. So best of luck with that. Uh, I don't want to get too close to it. But have we as a country done some good things? Yeah, I think we have. And I'm, I have told you before in other classes, I am most proud of a constitutional democracy because I think it's making the most change for people in the world. So I'm an advocate, okay? I'm on that side. You've already heard me say that. So... 
uh, as a Christian, what I would say is you, you can't be a nationalist. You can be a patriot. Um, but be careful as a patriot. <laughs> All right, with that said, uh, we have about 10 minutes that I'm willing to engage maybe some questions about content, not so much about um, ideology, because 10 minutes would be a disrespect to that discussion. Yes, sir. Uh, right, oh, can you be a nationalist and a patriot? Uh, no, because they promote different uh, agendas. They have different goals. When, so when you look at their, their, uh, the goals that they're promoting, they're not the same thing, ultimately. Okay, yeah, they have similarities for sure. No question about that. I'm not going to argue that. You're absolutely right. Fair, 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 fair. I mean, in terms of the Venn diagram, what you're saying is that you're just noting the overlap of the two Venn diagrams. I would agree there is some overlap, but there is enough over here that makes me say, no, you can't do that. Well, I mean, you can be patriots of lots of other countries. What's that? It depends on how far you're willing to go to it. It, I mean, there's, the question is in action itself. The question isn't like, am I willing? It's not just that black and white. Like, am I willing to just do this? It's like, how far am I willing to go to do these things? It can be. It can be. You can recognize that your country has done some good things, done some right things. Yeah, that's a hot debate, isn't it? It's a hot debate. Uh, you know, I think what I would say is, what I would question here very carefully is right or wrong. I would question, like, are we caring for folks by enforcing a language option that isn't real? I don't know. It's an interesting discussion. I think it's a fascinating discussion, actually. Uh, I think a patriot would say, we have done this wrong in the past. Let's try to do this in a way that's good, in a way that's helpful, or uh, in engaging with more people in discussion particularly a patriot Christian, a patriot nationalist, you're just looking to enforce, and that's where I would have problems. Is that helpful? Is that clarifying, I mean? I hear you. Okay. It's idolatry, yeah. But a patriot does similar things. That's why I said the line between the two is very thin and, and often invisible. That's why I said that. Sometimes. Sometimes. And then we have armies all over the world protecting other Well, but let's be honest too, it protects us. Let's let's not let's not whitewash who we are as the United States. We're there because it makes our interests better too. I mean we're there just as much for us as we are anybody else. Like to say that it's just making somebody else's better life better. Sometimes we do that. Not all the time, but sometimes we do. I think that's power over. Uh, sure, there are good things. Yeah, right. I agree. I think that's terrific. I think that kind of, like, I think what you're talking about there, like the student program, for instance, that's a good example, is a terrific example of patriotism, not nationalism. We're not making them become, as a matter of fact, we're not letting them become 
uh, citizens. We're saying we want you to come and learn and then go back. Has that changed the world? Maybe. I think it, to some degree, yes. Some people, yes. Other people, no. It's been a mixed bag. We've had some problems there. Um, it's hard, though. What your points illustrate, I think, very, very well is how hard this discussion is and how close the two lines are. You're exactly right. I would completely affirm that. Well, that didn't come out until 1950 in McCarthyism. So I think historically that is problematic. We were only doing that out of fear. And the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. So the one nation under God argument is specious to me because we did it in fear. I don't want to do anything in fear ever. That's what the Bible, Jesus says, I don't need to be afraid. I'm secure. We are secure. So McCarthyism isn't a good reason to do it, in my opinion. We have better reasons. Now, have we ever explored there's better reasons to be one nation under God? I don't think we have. I'd love the discussion, though. I would love it. I think that'd be very engaging so we can move away from fear. But it's a relatively new um, invention, honestly, and I, I think one done for all the wrong reasons. Yes, ma'am. Right. That's right. I'd love to say you're right that it's old kind of thinking. I think it's quite new. Yeah. I think lots of folks have that opinion on, on all kinds of, uh, of these matters, and this is why it engenders such frustrations with us. Um, I, I hope that if you're being stirred... He came to agree with you. All right, all right, all right. You know, these are, these are very, very relevant discussions because we have, I mean, obviously we have, as uh, Frank's noted, we have bases all over the world. My son serves in one of them. Um, these are really relevant discussions about who is, um, why are we there and what are we doing there. Uh, so he's in Korea uh, helping to protect the DMZ. Um, because of kind of how that never ended, right? It's still hypothetically an ongoing war. Um, they just stopped shooting each other, but the, the battle still rages. Um, thankfully, not today. Um, nationalism would tell either South Korea or North Korea, well, look, I need to have power over these people. And matter of fact, that's how the Korean War got started, was they were trying to have power over each other. The... I don't know. I mean, we can call it peace that we've had because it has been peace. Um, has been uh, tentative at best, and it, it keeps getting threatened for that exact exact reason. So, and I think America's interests there are to keep that peace because we don't want to get into another global war. Korea was about to spill into a global war. What would a global war look like today? Well, just missiles now. Today, it's just going to be missiles shot, quick ends. We, you know, cockroaches live, we all burn. Yeah, Terry. Okay. Sure, sure. Is your point that Thomas Jefferson believed in God? Right. So he just used the word. No, he didn't. Never. Read his writings. He never did. He used the word God, but he didn't mean God. He used it because it was an opiate for the people. But go ahead. Not for him, it wasn't. And he wrote it. Yeah. 
Right, but we act as a democracy. I understand. I mean, it's, well, it's an important one, but how it gets actually worked out is very different. We, I mean, they're, they're talking even now about doing away with the Electoral College. Whether that'll happen or not will be really interesting. I, well, maybe. Uh, it's fascinating because we might move to a, um, I, I mean, I hope we don't, but whatever. That's, we're going way far afield here. I really want to stay at the 30,000-foot level of uh, patriotism versus nationalism. Um, so let me get some other folks here. Jay, yes. Okay. Good. Mm. Okay. I love this question. This is a brilliant question. So here's the question. So everybody hear a question? There's this Facebook forum. This is where things often get out of out of uh, play. Let me ask you a follow-up question, Jay. How many people on that forum do you know? Okay, so the ones who are, how many of them that you know are Christians? A lot, good. Okay, so a similar number. The Venn diagrams also overlap. Uh, what I would say to you then, as your pastor, and you go to church here, so I'm going to say that, uh, is that you need to go to them as brothers and sisters and say, this is not representing Christ well. I would not, I would not never host, hey, Joe Smith, you're being a jerk Christian. They may be being a jerk Christian, but you are commanded to go to them individually and say, what you're doing here is representing yourself badly and you're representing Jesus badly. Please reconsider your words and consider not posting like this anymore. That is your duty to your fellow believers. Uh, Non-Christians, uh-uh, do not do that. They have every right to be whoever they want to be and if they want to be jerks to other people, fine. I would say unfriend that group or whatever. I don't do Facebook, so stop following it, whatever. But if you know people and you know they're believers, you owe them a phone call. Preferably a lunch. <laughs> I like lunch. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's slow. Uh, writing a post back on Facebook is much quicker uh, and guess how many people have been changed by Facebook? None to my knowledge. I'm still waiting for that first one. Most of the people just feel like they have to recoil and fall back and, and hide. So that's where, I, that's where I usually see. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Elaine, do you have it? Yeah. The federal spending. Okay. Okay. I might push back a little bit and say I think the, the morals that underpin our faith do have a place. Uh, if we're using it to proselytize, it's not going to change. We're not going to make anybody through our laws become a Christian. But should we look to use our, uh, the morality that Jesus has put in us to affect our country? I think we should. So I would make a slight distinction to what you're saying to say that God and politics don't belong together. I think we're humans and we're naturally going to put them together. And my ethos, the thing that I think is entirely based on Jesus Christ. Uh, well, I probably should be careful with that. I want it to be entirely based on Jesus Christ. I try, okay? I strive for that. 
Uh, now, I know there are other people who very much disagree with me who say the same thing. And then it would be up to me and that sister or me and that brother to wrestle through, okay, how are we going to make this truth uh, really make our, make our society better? Because we are incumbent on caring for our community. Uh, Jesus is really clear on that. So I, would, I wouldn't quite divorce him in the way that I heard you divorce him. Maybe you didn't mean it that way, but okay. Okay. You're right, they didn't. Um, I, don't, I don't know. That's hard. Now we're out of my pay grade. Let me just be honest. Uh, I'm going to fall into an area I don't know very much about, uh, and I'm just trying to be faithful to what I do know, and that is uh, what well, I believe I know, and that's scripture and theology and, and who Jesus has commanded us to be. Um, anybody else who hasn't talked yet, I'm, before I come back to Frank, well, I mean, this will be the last comment, Frank, so I hope it's good. Yeah. There's a lot to that question. It's not a simple answer, but a lot of it has to do with economy, and a lot of it has to do with how we set up our nations uh, such that we can take advantage of other countries. I don't think it's a simple one. Okay. I don't know how to respond to that, so I'm not going to. Um, let, me, uh, let me close this in prayer and just acknowledge that this discussion is hard. And I know that. And I don't know which side you're on. I don't know where you're, you're sitting and, and if you're feeling um, pushed. I hope that's ultimately my goal. What I really want to do is annoy you enough to uh, engage, like Jay said, you know, engage these brothers and sisters. I would love that. Uh, you all have family members that disagree with you. And, and they probably do so on Facebook or whatever. I would love for you to engage with them over a dinner discussion instead about why you're a Christian and how this affects or influences your decision-making process. I think that's brilliant. And when they have a different view, I hope you listen to them um, and give space for their views. Because, again, don't forget the example of Matthew and um, Simeon. Was it, or did I say Simon? Simon, the zealot. Yeah, Simon. Simon and Matthew. That's the example of the church. And that's the example I want you to leave you with. If everyone around you thinks like you, you're in a bad space. You are in an echo chamber. And those are not helpful places. So you need people who you respect, who you can listen to, who think differently than you. That is called the kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom I want you to be a part of. Because that's why we, we are here today. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thanks again for this discussion and for the challenging nature of it. Help us, Father, to not reduce this discussion to uh, elements that are just too simple, but instead we, we embrace the complexity of it. But most of all, we want to just embrace you. And I pray that uh, our faith in you and your relationship with us would continue to change us and uh, make us informed citizens in this country that we live in and that we would never try to baptize anything that's not of you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Oh, next week is uh, the Me Too movement uh, led by my wife. Thanks again for listening. To find out more about what's going on here at Grace Church, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, our website, graceocala.org, or, of course, on our campus here in sunny Ocala, Florida. Go in peace.